I'm Neil Shum, the Chief Medical Officer of Maven Clinic, and Femtech to me is putting people's reproductive health at the center of their healthcare. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Neil Shaw, Chief Medical Officer of Maven Clinic, the largest virtual clinic for women's and family health. Dr. Shaw is also Assistant Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Biology at Harvard Medical School. Maven's award-winning digital programs are trusted by leading employers and health plans to reduce costs and drive better maternal health outcomes. Maven has been recognized as Fast Company's number one most innovative health company and has 15 million lives under management. Did I mention that they're a unicorn valued at over $1 billion? Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. In this interview, we discuss how Maven Clinic is reducing employer healthcare costs, the challenges of serving women in over 175 countries, and the future of Maven Clinic. Learn more about Maven Clinic at www.mavenclinic.com. Hey, Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brittany. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting to have you on the show. We did have a little episode about Maven previously with Dr. Jane Van Dees. Um, so we're excited to get an update and actually dive a little bit deeper into the business of Maven. Did you know that we had y'all on the show before? Yeah, I am. Uh, because um, one of my former colleagues, Amani Bright at Harvard, when I left Harvard, she was like, oh, you're going to Maven. I know about Maven because there's this podcast that you have to listen to. Uh, so the episode with Jane was one of the first things I heard. That is so cool. Um, I actually do know, remember you telling me that story in Boston at the Women's Health Innovation Summit. And you were like, oh, yeah, I know your show. Like my students told me about it. And my little podcaster heart just fluttered. I was like, oh, I love it. Referrals. Totally. So awesome. Full circle moment. <laughs> well, you are not Jane. So we'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Who are you? How'd you end up working at Maven? Um, I am an academic doctor. Still, I consider myself to be an academic doctor. I mean, I, I so most of my career, um, so I, I'm an obstetrician, I deliver babies, but um, I think that bad systems beat good people. Mm. And I think that the system that we work in doesn't meet people's needs. So along the way, uh, I became a public health researcher to try to understand why, for example, maternal mortality is going up. And um, I spent the better part of a decade trying to chase down answers and trying to build solutions from an academic position. But what I found, particularly during the pandemic, well, really two things. One is, although you cannot deliver a baby through a screen uh, and you need, you know, clinics and hospitals, it's also the case that in the pandemic made this very clear that health isn't produced in the four walls of my hospital. Mm -hmm. It's produced in people's homes, in their workplaces, in their communities, and there's a big opportunity to try to meet them in those places in the full context of, context of their lives. So that's what kind of made me a digital health evangelist from a skeptic. 
Um, and then the other thing is like, nobody wanted to buy what I was selling as an academic. I had no product market fit. <laughs> and so there's this like beautiful moment where Kate Ryder called me and uh, a lot of the things I was trying to get done uh, from an academic role, she was trying to do in a startup model where what you're trying to do is meet an unmet need sustainably and at scale. And the sustainably and at scale part really spoke to me. Uh, so now I'm the chief medical officer at Maven. Here we are. I love it. Do you think more academics should be in startups? 100%. I think that there's this sense that like academics are like very ivory tower and disconnected from the world. I think that's totally true. I, I also think that there's a sense from some people that startups are like fast and loose, you know? Uh, and I think that there's a way of innovating in technology culture and startup culture where, you know, the end user is the source of truth always for like the best product managers and, you know, if more healthcare worked that way, it would be a lot better. Also, on the academic side, our source of truth is usually an empirical data set. You know, there's like an, a body of evidence. And that really matters too, but that's relatively new to the digital health world. Honestly, I think that digital health has as much potential to impact people's well-being as like drugs and devices. But it doesn't get the same scrutiny because it doesn't go, doesn't go through the FDA, typically. Uh, and... Um, I actually think that we should set a higher bar. Part of the reason to be a scientist inside of a digital health company is to make sure we're creating real value for people. I 100% agree. I totally softballed that you that question because I <laughs> sure. think, uh, you know, as a PhD myself, I didn't fit really well in the academic model, you know, and so I always was like kind of this like abrasive scientist up against the system because I was like, I want to push stuff. I want to question things. I want to change the way we do it. I want to move faster. And the system was like, that doesn't that doesn't really work here, you know, and so I did my time. I got my papers out. But at the end of the day, I was like, I can't work in a lab, you know, and startups. I said, oh, my God, the startup method looks a whole lot like the scientific method where we have a question. We run a pilot experiment for cheap with a little sample size. Right. Like I was like, this is just like my experiments. I don't put my whole sample in the tester. Right. Like if I have an idea for an experiment, I do a little pilot one, you know, like that's what an MVP got, is. And I've got to tell you, I mean, my like month two of being the CMO, I went to this health evolution summit, which is like for founders, executives, investors. And my immediate take was that the best entrepreneurs and the best scientists actually have very similar DNA. Yeah. You have this natural curiosity about the world, but you marry that with this relentlessness and this ability to test yeah. and then like the humility to like make sure that you know if your test comes out not the way you thought you course correct along the way i literally had an uh, investor in my first company say wow you're so humble you just pivot you just like tell us that your idea was wrong and i'm like well that's what the data said you know like what do you mean why wouldn't i follow the, what the results were and you know and that was a stark example of you know an mba saying well customers don't know what they want versus me i was like oh the customers hate it Let's change, you know, like, so. Totally. And actually just to be a little bit nerdy for one more second here. Yeah. Like there's this idea in science of like equipoise, meaning like the classic, you know, like physics experiment with the Newtonian thing is you drop a feather and you drop a rock and you're agnostic about what hits the ground first. You're like, let's run an experiment. Let's see. Yep. Like my whole life as an academic, I was like, no, I'm blowing on the feather. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, I I didn't quite fit in either because I, yeah. I, I, I had a point of view, you know? Yep. 
Totally. Well, we could have a whole episode just about that. I'm a big believer in it, but that's super cool. So give us uh, first those who haven't heard of Maven or haven't listened to the last episode, give us an overview of what is Maven. Sure. So Maven Clinic is the largest digital uh, clinic for women's and health, uh, women's and family health. We take care of people. Um, I'd like to think we're not a condition-based company. We're a phase of life-based company. So, um, you know, there's the phase of life where you're building your family, starting from being pre-contemplative about uh, whether or not you want to start to all the different pathways to parenthood in 2023, which is, you know, conceiving naturally, fertility assistance, surrogacy, adoption, through being pregnant, through parenting and pediatrics, and now menopause, which I'm really excited about too, because it's a very similar kind of transition where people are going through a lot of change in their health, but also just the context of their lives, socially, wow. uh, you know, professionally and otherwise. Uh, and so um, we have really two components to like the plat- the chassis of the product that I walked into was that we have this uh, care management solution where, um, you know, you can meet people in the context of their lives because we live in their pocket, you know, like that's, we're in their device uh, and we can support them to make healthy choices and, uh, you know, um, coach them around things like if you have diabetes, how to modify your diet. Um, and also we help with financial access, which is increasingly important in uh, a country where um, financial access is eroding across the board. And a lot of the really valuable services to people like doulas or even like fertility assistance aren't part of the sort of conventional health plans. Mm-hmm. So in summary, essentially the, the core the core of Maven is kind of like this uh, digital companion for women in their healthcare process. They're still seeing their doctor. They're still, you know, going through the regular checkups, but now they have a health expert on their phone to text with, to read blogs from. Is there telehealth through it? Can they virtually meet with the doctor on the, through the app? They can a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, actually what it is, my best friend today texted me to tell me that uh, him and his wife are pregnant. Um, this used to happen to me all the time. I'm 41 now, but in my thirties, like all the time, but like, this is really exciting because this doesn't happen. That See, I get the same text, but it's like, I have a yeast infection, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no. my sis burst. Why can't you, we fix this. <laughs> I don't get those as much, but I, I get the excited people who are pregnant. And like, you know, he was sending me like, um, you know, the excited picture of the ultrasound. And he's like, this is what's happening next. And, um, it's a, it's a source of great joy to me to be like uh, a resource for friends and family. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I think is like the greatest about being an obstetrician. Uh, and also I think all the time about what it would be like, you know, what it is like for people who don't have that kind of access. Mm-hmm. Great. It would be if they did for anybody, but particularly for the people who are the most vulnerable. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by my personal favorite design firm, Gadia, a women-owned, women-led UX design consultancy that specializes in bringing femtech innovations to life. This incredible team has extensive product and design strategy expertise in health tech and med tech and is a trusted partner to 20 of the Fortune 100 companies. They've launched more than 300 products to date, including the flagship products for seven unicorn status startups. Gadia is known for creating research-driven products and services that are engaging, useful, and easily interpreted into the patient's or customer's lives and care providers' workflows. 
Drawing on their deep knowledge of medtech, IoT, wearables, population health insights, digital therapeutics, and healthcare software, they help founding teams prioritize opportunities and focus on key features for clinical studies or MVPs. The team also has extensive experience with regulated device approval and can help you both understand and plan for the rigorous testing and approval process. To learn more about Gadia and get to know their team, again, my favorite team, visit Gadia.com. That's Gadia, G-U-I-D-E-A.com. And now back to the interview. So women are going through the healthcare system, but now they have this digital companion that's helping them, you know, get better results, have better health. Um, What is the Maven wallet? You kind of brought that up a little bit. That's a product I'm not familiar with. Yeah. So um, Maven wallet is basically a way of uh, making sure that uh, there's a reimbursement mechanism for services that a health insurance plan might not cover. And um, this is really important in reproductive health because reproductive health and women's health specifically uh, has not been the focus of our health system. And so there are many aspects of the health system that just aren't designed for women, to be honest, or for people who have uteruses. So uh, one example is fertility, where much like dental and vision, like these are things that we need, like you need your teeth, you need your eyes. Uh, and uh, a large part of the population needs fertility assistance. But um a lot of employers have carved out that benefit from their standard health plan mm-hmm. uh, for a whole variety of reasons, including the fact that if you go through your health plan, in many cases, you need prior authorization. You've got to prove that you're infertile. And like, just for example, if you're an LGBTQ couple, you don't need an infertility diagnosis to benefit. Yeah. From, <laughs> right. And so like, that, that's, that's what Maven Wallet is. It's a way of uh, letting your employer uh, like preload a debit card. Uh-huh. Or, or by the way, um, it's useful for uh, after the Dobbs decision, a lot of employers wanted to be able to reimburse employees who had to travel to access services. So we were able to stand that up immediately. Uh, That's awesome. uh, Yeah. There's a lot of um, interest right now in making sure that uh, people have access to doulas, particularly when you think about racial equity and maternal health. And, uh, you know, one of the things about maternal health is that maternal mortality for black people is really high irrespective of wealth. So there's a lot of programs for people in Medicaid, uh, but on the commercial side, you need something like Maven Wallet to make sure that there's reimbursement. Mm-hmm. Was Maven Wallet always part of the business or was that something that, you know, as an organization you realized over time was something critical? It's part of the evolution. I mean, I think, you know, what's been remarkable about Maven is it started off um, and it's always been true to a set of principles, but it's, it's built really around, uh, understanding what our members need. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we've taken care of more people with more needs and more places, the product has naturally evolved to, to meet them where they are. Your business model is that you sell it to employers and then the employers offer this service to their employees, right? And so first of all, I love that. We charge women for way too much. Um, we need to start charging other people. And I recognize that we lack billing codes. So sometimes insurance isn't the right move, but going the employer benefits route is a booming business model right now for women's health, especially now that 50% of the workforce is women and you know the CEOs and board members that be, whether or not they care about women's health, they care 
about their bottom line. And when half your workforce isn't feeling well or is out or is unproductive, like that's a problem. So we're seeing this increase in benefits for women's health specifically through employers. Was that always the business model of Maven or was that something that you evolved into? It's something that we involved into. In fact, uh, just last week, Kate and I taught at Harvard Business School because there's a case study on Maven um, that actually was published March 2020, like the day that- Oh my God, the day, yeah. (laughs) Um, And um, it's amazing because we're we're teaching the case study from May 2020. And now in 2023, so much has happened because three years is a lifetime at a startup. Um, But really what the case study is about is about the D2C, B2B conversion Mm. of Maven. And in terms of my own history with Maven, um, Kate called me in the early days of starting Maven because as a professor, you get to pontificate and we were put in touch and, you know, we, we emailed and talked periodically, but, um, I was interested in what Kate was doing. Um, and also in a direct to consumer model, the people that you serve are primarily people who can afford it and are willing to pay. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what you're really trying to do in that model is prove that this is a useful thing to people, but then it's not the best model to scale. Yeah. And it was when Maven first started to sign up like enterprise clients uh, that I began to think, oh man, there must be something really valuable. If like one of the biggest national banks in the country thinks this is valuable, like they've got actuaries, right? They're like, they do their diligence. Like, like Kate must be building something really cool. Uh, and that's when I started to get much more interested. But um, yeah, we're a B2B. We, 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 we sell to employers and to health plans. So we work with um, all of the major national health plans, as well as several of the regional ones, Medicaid systems. Um, And and in terms of the employers, you know, uh, there's about 450 of them now. Um, Definitely a lot of the Fortune 50, uh, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, companies that are all size, all sizes, unions. um, and and one of the, the 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 most fun things about being the CMO at Maven is I feel like I've got this cross section of America through all of the different industries mm. uh, and types of people that we care for. So like blue collar workers on an assembly line in Middle America, and like technology workers in the Silicon Valley. That's amazing. What advice do you have for any founders or aspiring founders listening who are thinking about an employer's benefit business model? Because what I heard you say is that the direct-to-consumer was actually really critical to prove that it was doing what it said it would do, that women, customers, patients wanted it before you were able to go to, you know, the Fortune 50s of the world. They're only going to take your call if you already have data showing this is really, really beneficial, right? So what do you say to founders in, you know, thinking about this type of business model, what should they start with the consumer first or any advice? Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, so I wasn't there for the early days, but I can tell you what I've observed now from just sort of my vantage over this space. I mean, I think the D to C to B to B to B to B to C progression mm-hmm. is one that is a model that many of the, I think the best companies in our space have followed, not just within femtech, but mm-hmm. more broadly, when I think about chronic disease management or mental health or things like that, particularly mental health, actually. Um, I would say it probably depends on what the product is. I don't think that uh, I would want to be like overly prescriptive. What I will say from an advice standpoint is that the big challenge in healthcare is that there's many stakeholders and they're rarely on the same page. So like, you know, there's the person you're trying to serve Mm -hmm. and you've got the purest relationship when you're D2C. Also, when you want to get out to scale, 
with a D to C, like if you're selling something like, like Roe and Hims have big D to C models, but they're selling particular products that work in that paradigm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. If you're selling diabetes management. It's not going to work at scale through like a Roe and Hims model. Um, but, 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 you know, once you're B to B, then you have the employer interest and you've got the member interest. And, um, if you're selling to a health plan and to employer, like the health plan and the employer also have slightly different interests. It's a Venn diagram, but I guess my advice is you've got to find the through line in everybody's incentives, Mm. but make sure that you're always being true to the person you're trying to make better off. Mm. I love this. Um, thank you for that advice. And I absolutely agree. It's, you know, there's some things in startups advice could go to any kind of company. And then there's other advice where you're like, well, it really depends. So, um, you know, Maven says that it, it saves mo- companies money by decreasing their employees' healthcare costs. Can you, um, we actually have listeners in about 128 countries. So can you just quickly elaborate on why employers have anything to do with their employees' healthcare costs? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and for States those who America. don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So, um, in America, so you can't have insurance unless you like have a group of people in many countries, uh, that are modern and civilized, the government assumes that role in our country. Uh, the plurality of people are actually aggregated by their employer. And so the way that people access health insurance and therefore access the health system is based on their employer. Um, and so until the affordable care act, if you weren't employed by someone who sponsored your health insurance, were kind of up a creek. Um, uh, but that that's that's really the model is that uh, health uh, American businesses, uh, especially larger ones, are on the hook for the costs of their employees' health. And that's actually, you know, from a global perspective, that's part of what um, you know it, it erodes their competitiveness globally because healthcare costs are very expensive and they go up year over year in our country. That being said, there's so much opportunity to make those dollars uh, more valuable to people and and to their employers. But basically, um, you know, uh, if you make people healthy, then they need less health services. Could you give us an example of, let's say a woman is using Maven um, and she gets, she avoids a C-section because, you know, she did certain things, you know, according to her digital companion suggestions. And now she has a natural, healthy vaginal birth versus a C-section. What would the like kind of, you know, give or take the price point difference be there? Yeah. So a C-section is a 50% margin per case. It's 50% more expensive. Also like it's major surgery. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, people shouldn't get major surgery unless they need it. Yeah. And it's less expensive. But like, the thing is, um, so, so when we think about outcomes, we think about C-section rates, we think about neonatal ICU, we think about mental health and emergency medicine, uh, or having to go to the ER and, um, like a NICU stay, like a day in the NICU is like a week at the Ritz. And if a baby doesn't have to go into the ICU, it shouldn't be the case. Right now in America, one in three people get major surgery to give birth and one in 10 of their babies goes to the NICU. Wow. Right. That's extraordinary. And like, it doesn't make sense that that, that should be the case. Yeah. Um, and just to be, be clear, like the way that we get there, like, and this is why you want scientists in startups, like in order to um, put our fees at risk, 
which is what we do on the basis of making people healthier. You have to have reproducible outcomes and the purpose of science is reproducibility. So you can't like wave your hands. You've got to have like a really precise understanding of what you're doing that's driving outcomes. Mm. For C-sections, we showed that, uh, you know, getting counseled about if you had a C-section the first time, you probably don't need one the second time in most cases. And if we talk to people about that at the right time in the right way, we change their odds of a vaginal delivery eightfold. My gosh. Uh, Well, Neil, I literally thought that if you, I thought as a host of this freaking show, that if you had a C-section, it meant the next time you were pregnant, you had to have a C-section. No, I don't know why I think that, but that's what's in my brain. Because like in our country, like, I mean, literally like you look to the left, look to the right, someone's had a C-section. They've been very normalized. Yeah. Right. And so like, but, um, you know, and, and I think there's something around childbirth where we, we tend to normalize the status quo. That's true in every part of the world. You know, um, but uh, but yeah, ninety percent of people who get a C-section the first time end up getting one the second time, whether they need one or not. You know, I always did wonder, like, why are we not all talking about how scary C-sections are? Like, you're literally awake with your abdomen cut open, like, and like people mention that you can feel their hands in you and stuff. But I'm like, we're all talking about this like beautiful birth, but also this sounds like a horror film, y'all. <laughs> like, this sounds terrifying. Well, there's a lot about childbirth that's potentially scary. And like yeah. the last thing we want to do is like further terrify people. Yeah. Uh, and so like, like, you know, for anyone who's listening, if you've had a C-section or if you might need a C-section, like we'll take good care of you, right? In our okay. health system. Good, good, yeah. <laughs> also, like if you can avoid taking care of a baby while healing from a large surgical incision, mm. it's like, you know, good. And so like, that's the thing about like aligning incentives, mm. right? I mean- it's not true in all of healthcare, but in many parts of healthcare, uh, you know, better care and lower cost are things that you should be able to achieve at the same time. And reproductive health, there's so many examples of this, but, um, you know, in the maternal health side, like less C-sections and less NICU is good for everybody. By the way, the way that we get to lower NICU rates is by um, helping manage people's diabetes and hypertension. Um, the way that we add value in mental health is literally just giving people access to it. That's it. (laughs) You know, like only 5% of pregnant people get to meet with a mental health provider in in America, but 30% of our members tell us we help them with depression and anxiety. And it's like literally just giving them access. Wow. Uh, So there's just so, so much low hanging fruit to do the right thing. Yeah. It's not really that hard. (laughs) It sounds like, you know, um, we're not splitting the atom. (laughs) We're finding people who need more care and support and we're giving it to them. That's it. Maven serves women in 175 countries. I saw on your website, what are the challenges of serving women in so many different countries and cultures? Are there all, are all their needs similar? Yes and no. So, um, no group of people is a monolith, right? Human beings are multidimensional. Also, I think what's been missing from healthcare is that um, you need three things to be trustworthy to people. You've got to be competent, which our healthcare system isn't, meaning like you produce good outcomes for people that are equitable. Number two, you have to be reliable. That's been the most broken thing about the brick and mortar healthcare system is like it doesn't show up for people when they need it. And so in a global context, you know, the fact that we can connect you to a human being expert within 30 minutes, any time of day, anywhere in the world is like game changing. And the third thing is you have to affirm people, Mm. meaning like, you know, um, it's ideal to have some shared lived experience and understand their cultural context. 
Um, so, um, uh, by the way, I'm not doing this podcast in the toilet. I'm not sure if you can hear this. And my son keeps walking in and out and like flushing the toilet. <laughs> so, I don't know if that makes it into your podcast. Yeah, my listeners have heard my dogs throwing up in the background, barking. So we're all good. <laughs> we love families and animals on this show. But um, I totally lost my train of thought. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That's okay. I'll give you a, a new question, Neil. Um, how many patients overall has Maven treated? We have um, 15 million people under management. Wow. And, you know, Maven claims to be a family clinic, right? You're big on women's health, but you say family, 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 right? And there's lots of reasons. I'm sure you do that. But I'm curious, at least for like, um, and if you even have debt on this, but the heterosexual couples, I would presume Maven is for both the mom and dad, right? If we're thinking of kind of cisgendered heterosexualness, but is it, do dads participate or like what percentage do you see is like moms using it versus dads? 40% are men <gasps> identify as men. Yeah. Good. I mean, we say women because um, Kate feels very strongly about this and I agree. Like you've got to be intentional about who you're centering and why. Mm. Right. And so um, I think that there's, you know, alternate points of view where, uh, in the aim to be gender inclusive, you don't say the word woman in 2023, but we feel very strongly that you should, because the health system isn't designed well with, to consider women at the center. If it was outcomes would be different. So we say that intentionally. And also, um, we believe in being inclusive also, because when you are talking reproductive health, there are many genders involved. So, but yeah, 40% are men. And I think that's like, you know, Men don't get a lot of empathy in 2023, um, but they deserve it, right? I mean, and um, we we often find that uh, they want to have a role in the family building process, like physiologically they do, like a third of infertility is male factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even beyond fertility, I mean, um, you know, we often have uh, couples that join uh, appointments together, which is really hard to do in the brick and mortar world because people yeah. have to work and we don't consider your work schedule in the brick and mortar mm-hmm. world. But the fact that people can connect at any time makes it more possible for, for, for the men to be more involved. Is that even happening for your other offerings like menopause, which it is not like a, you know, a collaboration in producing a baby? You know what? That's a great question. The honest answer is, I don't know. It's relatively early days for menopause. Boy, would that be awesome. Yeah. My gut is that like, we've got a way to go there in terms of educating um, people about menopause. I mean, the degree of unmet need in menopause is staggering. And like, at least in maternal health, you know, there are gaps, but like, if you're pregnant, we will take care of your pregnancy and we'll like take care of you during childbirth. We'll completely unplug for the postpartum period, but we'll at least do those things. But then in like menopause, uh, like four out of five people who show up to their doctor with concerning menopausal symptoms don't get their needs met. Mm. Like we're, we're just so far behind there. And, uh, you know, the dominant culture, which men are accountable for, uh, is like, you know, to kind of dismiss menopausal symptoms, to even make jokes about it. Like most of the, you know, stuff in the public domain, um, around menopause is usually in the context of a comedy. You know, uh, I was literally watch. I'm a big office fan, the office. I'm one of those people who like watches it all the time. And uh, my Saturday morning routine is I watch the like mega fan unedited versions. I know I'm really exposing myself here, but that's how I like <laughs> to spend my Saturday mornings, checking emails, watching the office 
um, fan edition. And there was actually a scene where they were making a joke about menopause and they were like, yeah. And like for men, it's manopause, get it, man. (laughs) And then they were like, oh, wait, what is, why wouldn't we just call it menopause? But it was in the context of like, you're moody and you're emotional and you're erratic. And it's just, it's like, it's like PMS. It's like the new PMS, like, oh, she's PMSing. Now it's like, oh, she's menopausal. And so absolutely it's in our culture to, um, not be like respecting of this time that in some cultures is seen as this like arrival to like wisdom, right? Like, Hey, you've seen a lot. We want to respect you and appreciate that more. What was the turning point for me even to decide to offer a menopausal, um, offering solution? We've been thinking about it for a long time. Um, in fact, uh, when I first joined the company, I was talking to one of our investors and trying to make the case for why I think we, we should do it because, um, you know, from my sort of clinical perspective, the big opportunity for me then is to create the on-ramp into the rest of the health system, mm. right? Because when you're building your family, that's a moment where you need healthcare. And, um, you know, if you get good care, uh, first of all, during family building pregnancy, it unmasks a lot of chronic conditions that you'll have to deal with going forward. And so it's like plugging you into the system. Menopause feels very similar to me because you're undergoing all this health screening during menopause. It's like when you get your mammogram for the first time, uh, bone density, um, menopause, you know, it, it, it involves hot flashes and stuff, but it's equally about bone health, heart health. Um, and yes. so I was always really excited about that. But then what happened was there was a commission in the UK that pointed out some of these gaps and a number of uh, employers who became interested and uh, that really became our opportunity to be like, okay, let's go. Now's the time. And, you know, the minute we turned on the lights, I think we had a hundred clients, like wow. almost like within months. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. You know, I'm, we're working with um, some clients at Fem Health Insights and Femtech Focus uh, that are trying to sell supplements to the menopausal women. And they are kept telling us that, you know, if it's addressing hot flashes or, you know, uh, you know, de- decreased arousal or mood swings and women will get it. But if it's about like bone health, heart health, gut health, it's a lot less, especially bone health, because I don't think we ever really we never look at our bones. We don't think about our bones, but I think the statistic is like one in three women break their hip by age 60. It's like, I mean, if we want women's heart health to be improved, we should probably make sure they can still exercise. Like a broken hip is a big deal. Um, you know, do you hope that Maven will, does Maven have specific bone health like suggestions? We do. Yeah. I mean, what, this is part of what's been so great about, um, being in this sort of creative space at Maven where, you know, when I talk about the product chassis, like we have this network of thousands of providers across 30 different specialties. And then we have an ability through our platform to, you know, develop content and communities very quickly. So when we decided to stand up a menopause product, like it was like, I think less than six months from saying, we're going to do this to having an offering out in the market that could support people. But that speed came from the fact that, you know, um, when we were mapping out somebody's needs, their clinical needs in menopause, we already had, you know, a pelvic floor therapist that they could connect with. Right. And we already had somebody who could talk to them about their bone health and about, you know, what a bone density is and what osteoporosis is and how to, what kind of medication you might need and, uh, what you can do to strengthen your bone density and all of those things. 
Let's talk for the uh, last part of our interview about acquisitions and exit strategies. So, you know, Maven has all these solutions. You have telehealth for fertility and family building, maternity and newborn care, parenting and pediatrics, menopause, breast milk shipping for traveling moms, a financial tool uh, to help with management of healthcare expenses. Yes, y'all, I'm reading a list. I rarely do this, but I wanted to see the list, all of these things. When I look at all these things on your website, all your services and offerings, this represents to me at least 50 femtech startups out there that are addressing you know, one of these things. Has um, Maven made an acquisition or you know, why is your is your strategy seems to be like building inside and launching you know, versus partnering or acquiring? And is there some you know, reason behind that? First of all, it's awesome that there are 50 femtech startups. And um, I think there are more, but like, yeah, probably at least though. No, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, you've been tracking this more closely than I, far longer than I, but like every time I go to a meeting, like the Women's Health Innovation Summit where we met, mm-hmm. um, like, I think it's awesome. It's so energizing to see a lot of early stage companies. And I want to make sure that everyone who's listening, who are people who, who probably are part of those companies or want to start those kinds of companies, uh, are encouraged. By, by that, um, right? Because we don't have enough. Um, so I just want to make that point. Um, I think, you know, Maven was an early uh, entrant into this space in many ways helped create the category, yeah. um, you know, and uh, Kate had to bust through at least three or four or five, depending on how you count along our funding rounds, uh, glass ceilings to get to this level of scale. Um, and I think that's part of, you know, why we've been building so much internally. We we have made acquisitions. We acquired Bright Parenting three years ago oh. uh, to be able to bring our vision of a more integrated parenting and pediatrics model to life because, you know, pediatrics is a clinical discipline. Mm-hmm. Parenting is something that you do in life. <laughs> and we yeah. want to be able to bring all this together. And that was a strategic acquisition for us. But generally speaking, I'm just super proud of our team uh, for building what they have with, over the last eight years internally. Yeah. Do you think that for startups listening that they need to focus on one solution or is this marketplace like um, hub and spoke model really the thing that women need? Because we find that a lot of early stage startups, you know, you need to stay focused. You have limited budget, da, 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 right? And so you're going to focus on hot flashes and menopausal women or something, right? But then at the end of the day, you you pull back and you're like, well, hell, there's 34 symptoms of menopause. Like, a woman wants to go to one-stop shop, preferably for all these solutions. So where do you find the, do you have any advice for founders that are dealing with the pull and tug of people telling them to focus, but also the product market fit likely means marketplace, like any feedback on that? Hmm. This is Neil Shaw's answer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so take it with grains of salt, but I mean, I think, um, the product market fit is important, but I think founder investor fit is more important because you want somebody who uh, believes in what you're trying to do in terms of the value you want to put into the world first, and then cares about your flywheel second, mm. right? Because especially at the earliest stages, it doesn't matter if it's scalable. Like, is it something that like the world needs? And then like, you can figure out the business model later, like, D to C, B to B, like whatever. <laughs> but like first, just solve a worthy problem. Find someone who believes in you enough to give you the runway to just solve it. And I think that requires focus. Now, there are definitely solutions where, you know, um, along the sort of value chain where you're creating leverage or, you know, and, and maybe 
you know, you're, you've got a clear like horizontal pathway because you're a SaaS technology company purely. I think, you know, if you're, if you're solving for a, a technology gap or you're solving for, you know, a specific healthcare gap, then I think the first thing is just solve the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Great advice, Neil. Last question. We all want to know, is there an exit strategy for Maven? What, what are you guys doing over there? Unicorn status? Um, I mean, I think, uh, there's a public exit at some point, uh, you know, in the future. And I think that's the right model, uh, ultimately for a company like ours. And we believe we've got a pathway to do that. Um, and also like right now we are very focused on executing, mm -hmm. on, you know, what, what we've set out to do because, you know, per our conversation, we, have this large membership, you know, 15 million people in your member. We've got all these different ways that we serve them and we serve them in all of these different places. And that's really complicated. Um, uh, and so we've got to focus on executing and serving people well. And that's, that's what we're doing. Awesome. Well, when that announcement comes out, whatever it is, whenever it is, we are going to be so delighted to reshare this episode with that great news. Maven is doing great work. Um, what an awesome leader for you know the rest of us to point to as well, because we're trying to prove to investors that this is a profitable, huge market. And when you have active unicorns, it really helps our case. So um, praise to Maven. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for your time today. This has been super fun. You bet, Brittany. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Neil Shaw, the Chief Medical Officer of Maven Clinic. Learn more about Maven Clinic at www.mavenclinic.com. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.